your Bibles to 2 John. Turn your Bibles to 2 John. 2 John. It's at the, it's at the end of the New Testament. And uh, it's the next shortest book of the, of, of the whole New Testament. So what is the shortest book in the New Testament? 3 John. 3 John. So 2nd and 3rd John are the shortest and the next to the shortest books of the Bible. And so we're going to study this little uh, uh, book. We're going to look at these uh, at 2nd John, but as we do, you get this idea today as we study it. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John belong together. Uh, they were written probably at the very uh, nearly at the same time by the Apostle John, as we're going to see. And through these three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the Apostle John is providing timeless tests to discern authentic Christianity, authentic churches, and authentic Christians. Uh, I want us to look at, at this. Now, let me say a little bit as we're getting those. True-false tests, or tests in general, can be uncomfortable. Some of you are already thinking, I hope that key isn't found. Okay, I don't want, I don't want to take a test, right? How many don't like taking tests? Yeah, many of us, right? How many don't like taking true-false tests, right? Why is that? Sometimes you, you don't need to explain certain things, but you are putting a false in a yes or no in your life. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of true-false. It's, it's either right. You only have one chance, right? You have 50% chance. It's either right or wrong, right? How many have taken a true-false test and you felt like the questions weren't worded uh, fairly or accurately? Right, Every, we've all been there. Uh, uh, Bill Bowman and I were taking a perspectives missions course right now, and so it's a lot of reading. And every week I have to take a test, and every week there's true false tests on on this thing, and uh, and it's just irritating because I'm starting to give. I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm like Emmanuel. I'm starting to write things out to the side and say, okay, look, this isn't you know this isn't quite worded right. There's there's many answers to this, and you're only giving two answers to that. So I'm, uh, you know, so sometimes we, we can be uh, frustrated by that, but we have to admit to one another that we're human. Okay. And so no one's going to write. And if you get frustrated at someone writing a true false test, then understand this. Good. Hand those out. Uh, <laughs> if you get frustrated at someone writing true false tests, just don't get too frustrated until you've had to write the questions yourselves, okay? So like even this test I'm giving you, this true-false test, it's very hard to write questions accurately, clearly, and, uh, so that people can really understand what is being said there. So as you, take, as you get this, just go ahead and take this, and uh, we're not going to grade you or any of that, but you're going to see it's relevant to that which we're studying in the book of Second John. All right, are you about done? All right, two more. We already got people telling me how to better write the test. That's just how it is. It's just, I'm telling you, it's the nature. Hey, you should do this, you should do this. All right, all right. All right, all right, we must move on. Okay, you ready? So just to go real simple here, uh, numbers 1, 5, 10, and 15 are true. 1, 5, 10, and 15 are true. The rest are false. One, five, ten, and 15 are true. And the rest are false. Now, easy or hard to take this? Whether you agree with those, the, 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 you know, the final answers, easy or hard? Yeah, hard. 
right? Do what, Andrew? Some more than others are very hard. And you're probably, how many feel like Emmanuel? Hey, I'd like to talk about this a little bit. I'd like to explain my answer or that answer. Okay, now, how many did you get correct? 14, let's see. The doctor of teaching is more important than there. Uh, oh, no, that's true. Sorry. My whole goal was to, I was only going to put like three true in there so I would know, you know, what, what they were. So we went, no, that's true. Very good. Good discernment. Okay. Are you ready? Did you, that make sense? Now, how many did you get right? Zero. If, if, if you only got five or less right, definitely come next week and keep coming. Okay? You want to come to the study. If you got 10 to 6, you're going to grow. You're going to benefit from the study. If you got uh, 10 to 15 or 11 to 15 right, that doesn't mean you don't get to come next week. What it means is uh, we need to be exploring the application. Okay, we have this truth, but are we walking in truth and are we walking in love? Because you're going to see from this study, you're going to see from Second John, the focus is on living out this truth. Does that make sense? So uh, take that, keep a hold of that, because I think you'll reference it back as we go through. Now, as I said, we don't like, you know, it makes us uncomfortable taking tests. It makes us uncomfortable giving answers. It makes us uncomfortable getting a grade. But here's why I did that. Because second, first, second, and third John, in a sense, is a test from God. These three letters are like a test from God. They are a test from the Apostle John. And we're going to see they test us in the three areas that all these questions really hit on. They test us in doctrine, in our morals, and in our relationships. Truth, love, and obedience. And here's the thing. When God gives a test, it's even more uncomfortable than when a human does. And true-false tests from God can be especially uncomfortable. But as we enter into this book, I want to give you some assurances from God. The questions will be written with perfect wisdom. Okay? You're free to critique my true-false questions, but what we're going to see in Second John, the problem is people were critiquing God's questions. And more than that, they were critiquing God's answers. But listen, the questions will be written with perfect wisdom. The answers will be totally true. And the grades that God gives are given with grace for his glory and for our good. It is good to be examined by God, by his truth, and according to his word. But it is going to be uncomfortable at times. It's going to be uncomfortable at times for me having to teach it. It's going to be uncomfortable at times for you listening to it. It's going to be uncomfortable for all of us as we measure and as we examine ourselves in light of God's truth in terms of truth, love, and obedience. But here's the thing. It's that uncomfortableness is worth it because you don't change without discomfort. You don't get better. You don't grow. You don't become more like Christ without discomfort. So it's going to be worth it. And that's why truth matters. Truth matters. That's why learning to discern between what's true and what's false is worth it. Because truth and lies have 
consequences. There are consequences to the answer to these questions that you've answered. And we can discuss the answers and we'll have a better discussion once we've studied the book. But the reality is your answers to that test do have consequences in your life and in the life of our church. And what are the truth or consequences? By way of introduction, I just want to say this. Truth has become meaningless in our culture. Truth has become, not will be, not kind of, sort of. Truth is now meaningless in our culture and sad to say in many churches and among even professing Christians. There is a struggle. There is a battle, not only for our nation, not only for our culture, but for the souls of people. There's a struggle for hearts and minds, a battle over what we will believe and what we will love. Now, I don't like giving stats a lot of times, but I am going to give you some for this study to set it up. Only 22% of Americans now believe in absolute truth. And that was in the early 2000s, so it's even greater. Only 20 uh, 20, what did I say, 20, 22%. One poll in 2002 said 73%, 73% of American college seniors report that their professors teach there is no such thing as right or wrong in the literal sense, that good and evil are addressed in terms of individual values and cultural diversity. Now, that was early 2000. We're already seeing played out, particularly in our own uh, state university here in Missouri, what that ends up doing on college campuses. It brings chaos. It brings conflict. It brings division. It propagates hate. It increases intolerance. This idea of saying things are relative and you get to believe what you believe and I believe doesn't bring peace. It brings war. It brings conflict. 41% of adults, 41%, nearly half of adults who attend church weekly state that they are not born again. Listen, more and more in churches we have people who either don't say they're born again or think they're born again and they're not. Now, does it matter what we believe? Listen to these statistics. This is from Barna Research. And these are stats on people who say they are born again. So these are people who answer a set of questions that are biblical, that lay out what a born again person would at least believe. And they said, yeah, we're, we're born again. We're professing born again believers. 39% of those people say Jesus committed sins. 30% of professing born-again Christians believe that Jesus Christ never had a physical resurrection. 51%, nearly half of those who profess to be born-again Christians, believe that a good person can earn their way into heaven. 53% of professing born-again Christians believe that the Holy Spirit doesn't even exist. Listen, 2 John has something to say to our culture where truth has become meaningless. And here's what this study, 2002, said about teenagers. Now, these are now young adults. Here's what they believed as teenagers. One-third of American teenagers claim they're born-again believers. 
88% of teens, I mean, this is just general, say they're Christians. 60% say the Bible is totally accurate in all its teachings. And 56% feel their religious faith is important in their life. Those are high numbers. And yet the same people are saying this. Slightly more than one half of all U.S. teens believe that Jesus committed sins while he is on earth. Our teens are even believing more adults. These same teens are saying 60% of them, more than half, uh, that agree that enough good works will earn them a place in heaven. About two-thirds of these young people who say the Bible is so important and so relevant and that they're born again, 60% uh, or two-thirds of them say that Satan is just a symbol of evil, not really a living being. And what is worse, but what explains all of this, is this stat. Only 6%, 6% of all teens believe that there are moral absolutes, and that's in 2002. And more troubling than that to a church like ours is that only less than 10%, less than a tithe of professing born-again teenagers believe there are moral absolutes. Listen, you can carry this book, you can listen to this book being taught and yet if you believe in your heart there are not absolute truths that impact life you're dead in the water to deal with the cultural chaos truth is meaningless now i understand and this is why i don't share a lot of them i understand that what can make statistics say most anything but i don't think any of us would look at our culture today and say hey you know what a decade ago barna got it wrong no we're seeing the fruit of it in our streets, in our schools, in our homes, and in our churches, and sadly, even in our pulpits. The pressure to compromise. The pressure to compromise the truth of the gospel has never been greater in our culture, but, but not in church history overall. Let me explain why I say that. Listen, the pressure has never been greater in U.S. history no Christians in U.S. history have felt the kind of pressure from our government, from our culture, like what we're feeling today. It is unique, and there's more of it to come, and we need to be ready. But here's some encouragement. Such pressure and such persecution is not unique to the church down through history. Okay, We're not the first, so don't panic. Everything's not coming apart. Christians have faced this throughout the history, and certainly in the first century when this letter was written, they felt it. That's why it was written. That's why we need to study it. Now, we live, parent, work, relate, and witness in the 21st century. So where is the pressure to compromise coming from in our day, in our time? And I would say this, the pressure is to let love determine what is truth. The pressure to let love determine what is truth is greater than ever. And as I prepared for this study, it just so happened that uh, uh, on the, uh, the blogosphere and on the internet blew up with uh, this clip, this two-minute clip of a megachurch pastor. And I, I wanted to eliminate his name, but there's no way to do that with, with the way this clip's set up. So 
because there it is, okay? But the point is not the guy's name, so I won't even stay, say it. The point is what he's preaching. Listen to this. Love will take you way further than the law ever could. I'll prove it to you. Let's say your child is in a horrible accident. Let's say they bust their head wide open on the monkey bars. And they fall off the monkey bars. And monkey bars are like 30 feet high. I'm making this an extreme example. And they fall down and they bust their head wide open. And you scoop them up and put them in the car to get them to the emergency room. And on the way to the emergency room, every sign you see says, uh, speed limit. How much attention do you pay to the numbers beneath the speed limit in that moment? Those numbers mean nothing to you. Why? Because somebody that you love is in trouble. And in that moment, any parent will break the law for the sake of love. Any human parent will break the law for the sake of love. And what will really turn your heart to God is not when you hear His laws, which were given for our good, by the way, but they were powerless because there wasn't enough leverage in our action to keep the law. So what God did when He sent His Son, and this is why we get excited in church, and this is why tears fill our eyes when we think about Jesus, and this is why the gospel is still good news in the world today, because God broke the law for love. I said to every sinner, God broke the law for love. I mean that He scooped you up in His arms. I mean that He's carrying you in His grace. I mean that what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His Son in the likeness of a sinful man. All right. Even cringeworthy to even hear that. Okay, are you hearing what he's saying? God loved us. God made so much of us that in order to save us, he broke his own law. He broke the speed limit in order to save you. Now, there was the gospel thrown in there in that. And that's the way truth and error are. But that's wrong. That's totally wrong. Now, it's true on a human level. And that's what he said. On a human level, yeah, I left Amber at Westlake Hardware. And let me tell you, when I figured that out, I tore out of my house. I jumped in my car. I sped. I came down to Antioch Road in Inglewood and I said God you're going to have to protect me because I'm running this red light and I've got to get there I've got pictures of milk cartons in my mind with my precious daughter on it and I'm going to save her that's true but I'm not God and God's not human and God is able by his grace and by his glory and by his righteousness and by his truth he is able to love us in a way that saves us by keeping the law. Amen? By keeping it, not by breaking it. Listen, if God had to break the law, His own law, if He had to break the truth in order to truly love people, we're in a world of hurt. Because there's nothing that makes sense in this universe. God can break His law. And yet, mega churches with mega pastors with mega followers, are praising. And by the way, I want you to start playing music 
Audra, behind when I really get, there should be organ music right now. Now, here's the, here's the reality. Second John speaks directly to such error and false teaching by telling us no matter how meaningless truth has become in our culture, no matter how much truth means less to some churches and some Christians, truth matters so long for it. Truth matters. So long for the truth of the gospel and make it a priority in our life and we should make it a priority in our church. Listen, truth matters in a meaningless culture. Long for that truth and make it a priority. The Bible places a priority on gospel truth over even love. And that's what we're going to hear in 2 John. That's what you're going to hear in 1 John, in 3 John. The Bible places a priority on gospel truth over even love. We will discuss that. We will play that out. We will see why that is true. Because gospel truth is God's priority, we should long for the truth in a world of lies and liars. And that's just just where we're living. We should long for the truth. Now, that's the big idea of this little letter. That's the main message of this this short letter, truth matters in a world of lies and liars. And I've already said that Second and Third John, shortest of the books in the New Testament, they both would fit on a eight and a half by eleven page, one page of papyrus. And so the author sat down and he said, "Look, I've got one page. I've got to get it all into one page." But each Second John and Third John both end with these words: "I have more to write to you, but I want to write it to you. I want to say it to you face to face because these topics are so difficult. It is uh, just like you know. I, I looked at, at, at some of the, the answers on your test. Well, some people said, "Hey, things were false that weren't false, except for that one that I did get wrong." And some things were true that weren't, weren't true. Well, let's talk about that. you got to talk about it. you got to be face-to-face. So what this series is going to do is we're going to talk face-to-face, and I want to give you an overview of this little book and basically answer two questions. To whom does truth matter in this letter of Second John, and why does it matter? So let's take a look at it, and we'll just read the first three verses of Second John today. I would encourage you to read this on a regular basis in this series. You can do it in less than three minutes, five minutes at max. Let's look at it. First John 1 through 3. The elder to the chosen lady, or the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. We love for the sake of truth. Grace, mercy and peace will be with us from God, the father and from Jesus Christ, the son of the father in truth and love. In fact, let's go down to verse 4. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. There in four verses, John has managed to use the word truth five different times. Four verses, five different times. Truth is a priority in this letter. And so the first thing I want you to see is, to whom does the truth matter? And here's the first point. Truth matters to God's elect people who long for the truth. The truth matters 
to God's elect or chosen people. I don't care which word. They both mean the same thing. God's chosen people who long for the truth. And we see this in two people, both the man who wrote the letter and the people to whom he wrote the letter. So let's look at it. Truth mattered to the elder leader who wrote this little letter. Truth mattered to him. He's the one that wrote it. He addresses himself in verse 1 with the simple phrase, the elder. Okay, and both 2 John and 3 John start in the same way. So that begs the question, who is the elder? Let me give you four ways to identify him. Number one, he is the Apostle John. He is the Apostle John rather than some other unknown person. Now, because he doesn't say, hey, I'm the Apostle John, instead he says, the elder, there's a question of, well, is this the Apostle John or is it some other guy, some other old guy that slipped this thing in? What is it? Well, there's two views. And I don't want to get too deep in these details, but there's two views, so you know there are options. It's either the Apostle John or some other person who simply identifies himself as the elder. Let me give you the short answer to this. The similarities between these three letters and the Gospel of John are of such a nature that there it is strong and convincing evidence that this man who identifies himself as the elder is indeed... The, the Apostle John. And anyone who wants to say it's not, the burden of proof is on them to prove that the elder is not the Apostle John. You know what's interesting? Both in the Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the author never comes out and identifies himself. And so you kind of got to do this process of elimination. You got to compare the writings. You got to look at what early Christians who actually knew John, what did they say? And the evidence is this. This is the Apostle John. But that brings up another question. And what is that? Why did he call himself the elder? Why didn't he say John the elder? You know, why didn't he say the Apostle John? Here's second reason. The one who wrote this letter, the elder, is one whose age made him the last living apostle. His age made him the last living apostle. And that's what elder means. Elder simply means, it, it, one of the meanings of that word is an old guy, an older man, an older gentleman, a senior person, okay? An older person. It can refer to old age. An elder was an older person with the maturity and wisdom that often comes with old age. By the way, it doesn't necessarily come with old age. You know, there's a false idea that because you're old, you're wise. You know, sometimes you're just an older fool, okay? So, but often there comes with age, wisdom, and experience. Amen? Right? Okay? Now, John was most likely, here's where you got to understand it. John was most likely one of the youngest apostles when Jesus chose the 12 apostles. He was probably a young teenager, the youngest one. And the Gospel of John was written 50 years after Jesus had chosen him. And this letter was written another 10 years after that. So you're talking a guy probably in his 70s, early 70s. You say, well, that's the new, you know, middle age, right? Right, Jack? New middle age, right? And, uh, but the reality is people usually only lived 40 or 50. So this guy is like... 
you know, he'd be like a hundred in our thinking, right? And so when he says, hey, the old one, and they're like, oh, you're talking about John. You know, that's John. We know who that is. The, so by this time, he was an older man, very likely, and by this time, the last living apostle, okay? And so all tradition and history has shown that all the other apostles died a martyr's death. John is the one, the youngest one, who has lived the longest, and he is the last living apostle. So when he said, the elder, you knew. Oh, the old guy that used to be a teenager with Jesus, the last living apostle. In fact, read John chapter 21 sometime. At the end of the gospel, uh, Peter uh, is freaking out because Jesus is telling him, you're going to die by crucifixion. And John, the beloved disciple, is following behind. He says, what about this guy? Because we always want to know about the other. Man, if I got to suffer, what's he going to get? I hope it's equally bad because misery loves company. And Jesus says, hey, if he lives until I come again, what is that to you? You follow me. And John says, I had to include this because people, when they heard that Jesus said this, they thought I was going to live forever. But he said, no, what if I want him to? But I think there's a hint in that. Because, you know, in reality, John did live until Jesus came again in the sense that he received on the island of Patmos in his old age the revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Isn't that cool how God can fulfill his word in a way? And so John did live to see the second coming, but not in a physical sense. Now, Remember that Paul, in the book of Philemon, would sometimes refer to his age uh, in appealing to disciples who were dear in his heart. So it's very normal for an apostle to say, hey, look, I'm an old guy. Listen to me. Listen to Philemon. He says, therefore, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is possible. Look, I've got the authority of an apostle. Yet for love's sake... Big topic for John, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul, the elder, the aged, the old man. Hey, do this for the old man because I know you love me and you know I love you. I appeal to you for my child. Peter also referred to himself as a fellow elder in 1 Peter 5.1. So it's not unusual for this to happen. But there's another reason why I think John might have identified himself as the elder, and here it is. Number three, one who has a close association with those he is writing. One who has a close association with those he's writing. Why didn't he identify himself? Because he didn't need to. As soon as he said the elder, they're like, well, there he is. It's like when uh, uh, Pastor Tyrone was our uh, lead pastor. Uh, Everybody called him preacher. Okay, so if you said preacher or the preacher said this, you didn't think it was like, well, which pastor in Kansas City are you referring to? No, in close association here, who did you know you were referring to? Oh, that's Tyrone Adrian. I know who that is. You don't have to say preacher Tyrone or pastor Tyrone. You say the preacher. Okay, so that's the same day. When he's saying the elder, John lived most likely in the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor. He's writing to another local church, as we're going to see. He's writing to another local church that he has ministered to, that he has visited. And at the end of this letter, he hopes to visit them again soon. They know who he is. He knows who they are. He's a father figure. He's esteemed. He's honored. Everyone knew when you said the elder and you were in this part of the country, everybody knew you were referring to the apostle John. 
So, he does it in 1 John because he's writing to people, he, or I'm sorry, in 2 John because he's writing to people he knows. And he does it in 3 John because he's writing to a man named Gaius. Now, if you want more information on this, I've got charts there on the writings of John. You can look at those. It'd be good for you to look through it. Just look through it. It's basically scripture categorized, showing you how these letters uh, connect. So John, the aging apostle, could write to them, the elder, and everyone would know who it was due to their close association. But there's one last thing I want you to know about this man, the elder who wrote this letter. Just because he was older and just because he knew them well and just because he didn't use the term apostle didn't mean he was one who lacked the authority of Jesus Christ. So number four, one whose authority was widely recognized and highly respected. One whose authority was widely recognized and highly respected. And that's kind of how it works in real life, isn't it? The more you know someone, and the more you know someone with great authority, and the, and the closer you are to them, the more you respect them when they live in truth, love, and obedience. And in a sense, they have even greater authority with you because of those things. Now, remember, both Paul and Peter referred to themselves as old ones or elders, and neither one had any less authority in doing so. In fact, when Peter called himself a fellow elder, he was addressing other pastors and leaders in the church who also led with biblical authority. In fact, in 1 Peter 5.1, let me read it to you. It says this, Therefore I exhort the elders, or pastors among you, leaders with authority, as your fellow elder and witness of the suffering of Christ. He's throwing in there, I'm also an apostle, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And yet in verse 5, he comes down and he says this, You younger men, likewise be subject to your elders. Elders are leaders in the church who lead with the authority of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they have a big church or a microphone? No, because they teach the authority of the Bible. Okay? Now, so John's writing to a local church and he's saying, Look, I'm the elder in the sense of I have the authority of a pastor and an apostle. I'm one who's of such an age that I'm the last living apostle, and I'm one who you know very well through a close ministry discipleship association. So even though I'm not calling myself an apostle, you know me, and you know I'm writing this with the authority of an apostle as we deal with this outbreak of false teaching and false teachers. Here's the bottom line. I don't have any right to critique that pastor we heard this morning. He's free to say what he wants, and I'm free to say what I want, and I don't have any authority in myself to say, that's heresy. That's error. That's not gospel truth. It goes against the gospel. But I do have authority, as do you. And I heard some of you grimace when he said those things. You have the authority of the Word of God. You have the authority of the spirit of truth. You have the authority of Jesus Christ to measure what anyone says by the truth of the Bible. So, you might be saying at this point, well, what's the big deal with this? What's the point? Well, here's the bottom line. To whom does truth matter? Listen, truth matters to those who are Christ's representatives and are sent as his messengers and as his preachers and teachers. You better want truth to matter to the pastors of this church. 
You better want truth to matter to the leaders whom you have selected to lead this church with authority and in truth and love. You better hope that truth matters to us because your care depends on it. Are you with me? And that's not just for us as your pastors. That's anybody you hear on YouTube. That's anybody you hear on Facebook. That's any article you read. You need to look at it in light and say, look, truth matters. It doesn't matter how many people are liking this and sharing this. I need to know, is it truth? Is it truth? You may even like the author. You may like the musician. You may like the preacher or teacher. But the problem, the issue is not personality and popularity. What's the issue? Truth. Truth matters. Truth matters to God's elect and chosen leaders in the local church who are to guide the flock of God and preach the word in season and out of season. Listen, like the aging apostle, the truth of the gospel should never, ever become meaningless or matter less just because we're growing older. What's the tendency when we grow older? The tendency often is to lighten up. The tendency is we've grown weary. The tendency is we don't have the energy anymore to put into the fight, to put into the proclamation of the truth. And we can, in, in the older years, we can lighten up. Now, we, of course, get tempered by love. We'll talk about that, you know, um, and, and, and we know that. But at the same time, we can't just say, you know what, I'm just too tired to, for the fight. John didn't do that. He's in his 70s. He's the old one. And he says, look, truth matters. Four verses, five times. Truth matters. We are charged by Paul to preach the word. Truth matters in season, out season, out of season. Truth matters even when it comes to people wanting to gather themselves, teachers who tickle their ears with what they want to hear rather than what God spoke. It grieved me as I looked at the comments on this Facebook video uh, people saying, hey, I never thought about it that way. Praise God. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm sad you ever heard it. But I'm more concerned of your lack of discernment to reject it. Now, there's people in there rejecting it, believe me. And there's all sorts of articles uh, that are countering that from the Bible. But the reality is, listen, truth matters to the men called by God to preach and teach the truth of the gospel. But it also matters to local churches that they lead because those churches need to be filled with God's elect people. And that brings us to the people to whom John is writing. Truth mattered not only to the elder leader, but truth mattered to the elect lady and her children. Truth mattered to the elect lady and her children who received this little letter. You know, it's hard to believe. Second shortest book of the Bible, and we're like, who wrote it? Who did he write? There's all this mystery about this book. So those what it says. The elder to the chosen to the chosen lady, the elect lady and her children. Now I don't know, ladies, how many of your husbands call you the elect lady? The elect the lady Gwen do I do that no I do not do that uh, what maybe I should I study this who is the elect lady and her children well just like with the identity of the elder there's kind of two views on this and uh, let's look at who is the elect lady and her children well first of all it's a personification it's a personification 
it's a figure of speech rather than a real person. It's a personification. In other words, rather than a real individual lady with her children around her, he is taking something that's not human and he's identifying it and personifying this as the elect lady. And some people think that it's, it's a real person. And they think, hey, this lady's name, she's either referred to as that chosen lady. There's a song that keeps coming up in my mind every time I say that. But, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the chosen lady. And, uh, or her name was like electa, which is the Greek word. So it was the lady who is called electa. Or the, the word for lady there is her name, curia. Anyway, all these different views. A real person. Well... First of all, there's not a lot of evidence that those names were even those words were even used as names. There's not a lot of evidence for that. Plus, in verse 13, if you're going to say chosen or elect was her name, her sister had the same name. Look at verse 13. The children of your chosen sister greet you. So, electa, your sister electa greet you and her children. Okay, there's, there's this. This is not likely. More than likely, John is using a figure of speech to refer to a local church like she is an elect lady and her children are the members of the church. So who does truth matter to? Matter, truth matters to local churches who are filled with elect, chosen members. Let me make it real simple. God's people long for truth. And they go to churches that long for truth. And they put themselves under leaders who long for truth. Because that's what God's elect, chosen, predestined, saved people. God puts in his people a longing for truth. And they make it a priority in their churches and in their own lives as members of that church so what do you have number two it's a picture of a local church and the members who are that church it's a picture of the local church and this makes sense this makes sense for a lot of reasons first of all the church is referred to in the in the new testament as the what the bride of christ the bride of christ what he's saying is hey you're that chosen woman who is the bride of Christ, okay? He also, also in the New Testament, Paul and the other apostles refer to churches as the household of God, right? And they are filled with the family of God. So it makes very good sense to refer to members of a church as children, as family members, especially when he's identifying himself, hey, I'm the older guy in the family. And you are the chosen bride of Christ. You are his church. So why did he refer to them in this way, in this letter? Number three, it's a way to place the truth of this letter in the context of loving relationships and sovereign grace. Listen, I'm taking the time to delve into this because this is the foundation of the rest of the letter. This is the foundation. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know what? We're going to be talking about truth. And truth can come across hard. 
It can come across rigid. It can come across as unloving. But I want you to understand this is truth in love. And so I'm referring to you in family terms. I'm referring to you in terms of love and relationship. We're in this as the family of God. Don't let false teaching, don't let false teachers break up God's family. Don't let it break up your family. Truth, truth in loving relationships. And so he's saying the truth of Christianity is best lived out in the context of loving relationships. Listen, truth is a priority, but that doesn't mean love isn't important. Truth is best lived out in the context of loving relationships in a local church. But here's something more important. Don't lose this word, elect, chosen. Why did he say that? We tend to underplay that doctrine. We tend to ignore that word. I mean, how many times have you read 2 John do you even think about chosen? Okay? But here's the reality. The security of churches and the security of its members is founded in God's electing love and sovereign grace, not popular culture and not political correctness. Listen, there's pressure today. You, we as your pastors feel it. You as elect member of God's family and a member of a local church that teaches that truth, you feel that pressure, but understand this. It's not a popularity vote. It's not, uh, it's not peer pressure from the culture. It's not political correctness. It's not even persecution. And God help us to get ready. But I tell you what, when that stuff comes, and when it comes home, and when it comes to the church, you better understand God's got me in his hands. God has me in his hands. And God has chosen and predestined and secured, and I am safe, and I will stay with the truth. I will continue to love in the truth. I will continue to obey the truth because I am one of God's elect. I am one of his beloved children. I am a part of his beloved family. And so John's saying, look, don't let them false teachers, you heard one today, don't let them false teachers draw you away. Instead, focus on God's sovereign grace. Focus on the gospel truth, gospel love, gospel obedience. Well, that's all we got for today, but that gets you going. Who is it important to? God's elect people. Come back next week and we'll delve more into why that's important because we live in a world of lies and liars. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we need your grace. The times are getting more difficult. The days are getting darker. Lies and liars are propagating. And more and more, there's less discernment. And there's more opportunity with technology to be exposed to error and to unwittingly, often ignorantly, pass it on to others with a click of a mouse. But Lord, we are your elect people. And God, thank you for the legacy of decades of this church, for being a chosen lady whose members and people long for the truth and make it a priority in their lives. God, prepare our hearts for what's coming. 
prepare us as a people, as your elect people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.